sponsoring this podcast today are Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation fundraising for military charities and they have been doing it for 13 years. Their next event is very, very soon. It is on the 17th and 18th of June at Old Leventonians RFC. It is the annual Rugby for Heroes Beer and Gin Festival. That's right, it is back. Live rugby, live music, beer, gin, street food, family attractions and all in aid of armed forces and veteran charities. This year, Rugby for Heroes Beer and Gin Festival is going to be supporting the 353 Charitable Trust. So get your backsides along to the event and join everybody else there. Tickets are free. You heard me right. The tickets are free. There's also camping and caravan uh, hookups and spots available on site. That's not free, but it's cheap as chips. Tickets are free, and if you want to stop on site, you can do. If not, stay somewhere local. These are brilliant events. I love the Rugby Heroes Beer and Gin Festival. My favourite day of the year. One of my favourite days of the year. Definitely. It's up there with the Wales versus England International every year as well. Come along. I will see you there. I might even buy you a pint. Get on to rugbyforheroes.org to find out how to get your tickets. It's on Eventbrite. It's on Eventbrite. So get on there. Rugbyforheroes.org. You'll find the Eventbrite link and you're going to reserve your free tickets. There'll be many podcast guests there. There'll be many podcast fans there. There'll be many friends there, colleagues and good people, drinking, being merry, being happy. Rugbyforheroes.org. And stay up to date with everything on the social media, at Rugby Number 4 Heroes. Also, bringing you this podcast today are the Aardvark Group. Founded in 1982, Aardvark has established itself as a major player in its field, renowned for its exceptional technology and innovative propositions that have supported countless defence ministries, the humanitarian and NGO sectors, and commercial operators in theatres of war and post-conflict environments around the world. Aardvark is foremost a humanitarian organisation, working to help rid the world of the explosive remnants of war. Their technologies are uniquely developed by operators for operators, which ensures that every product, system or platform conforms to the essential criteria of stability, survivability and reliability. Aardvark know that to have a truly lasting positive impact, their technologies must be cost effective. And so they've commissioned a number of projects with their research partners to develop technical innovations with a core aim of delivering affordable solutions that can be deployed directly into communities to reduce the incidence of accidents and deaths due to explosive threats. As well as their core products and services, they also have an online shop where if you're an individual who works in a post-conflict zone in a high-threat situation, in a high-threat environment, you can get kit from Aardvark. Their website is aardvark.group. Go there and at checkout, use the discount code H-H-O-U-R. And while you're there, make sure you check out all of their products, all their services, including unmanned ground and air vehicles. Also bringing you this podcast today are Combat Cigars. Combat Cigars was founded in 2021 by three friends, three former colleagues in the Parachute Regiment, the British Army, and I'm very glad to say I am one of those three. Very glad to have been invited into the company, and it is super exciting 
to be working with those guys again. Combat Cigars sources its cigars from a family who have been rolling cigars in the heart of Colombia for over 200 years. The cigars that Combat Cigars supply to you are only available through Combat Cigars. You cannot get these anywhere else. Each cigar is unique, and we have four currently in the collection. We have the Last Post, we have the Oath of Allegiance, we have the Center of Mass, and we have the Victory. The Victory features on its cigar band the medal ribbon of the South Atlantic Medal with rosette. Very significant at the moment, given that it is the 40th anniversary of the Falklands conflict. Head over to combatcigars.co.uk to see the collection. Also check out the Combat Cigars Humidor, which is handmade out of ammunition tins and will keep your cigars perfectly stored for whenever you need them. When you think of cigars for your next event, or the next event you're at, be it a wedding, be it a mess do, a dining in, a dining out, a promotion, or just getting together with your crew, think Combat Cigars. CombatCigars.co.uk Recording. Jenny Murray, welcome to HR Studio. Full disclosure, Jenny's my cousin. So we may... We may we may, we may know each other. Yeah, also, we may, we may talk to each other in ways that people don't find acceptable. F- funny enough, yeah, well, I thought... I Yeah, well, I thought this... When I was interviewing Ailu, I had Ailu on, didn't I? I oh, interviewed yeah, Ailu. I didn't see that one. Right, so I, well, I interviewed Ailu. We were talking about all sorts of stuff. G- gender and, and, and sex and gender and all that. And, and we were talking. But I caught myself talking to her in a way that I would not talk to a guest like that normally. Like... <sighs> You can like be more insulting if 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 you know what yeah. I mean, uh, being less polite because you, especially with her and I, we, yeah. we like we the way we speak to each other, to each other generally is just abuse ridden, chat. Yeah. And uh, and you know it's like when you know someone that w- better, you tend to, you tend to be more willing to push the boundaries of offensiveness. Does that make sense? It makes sense, and I and I might go off on a tangent and talk a lot, and and then go off track, and you are more than welcome to just tell me. I do the same thing. This is going to be fun. So fun. I mean, normally when we are having these conversations, it's in a a social context, let's say, and we're getting kind of socially confused with the help of alcohol, alcohol, yeah, and then it doesn't matter because everyone's talking rubbish anyway. But this is now meant to be serious, and I actually do want to have a job after this. (laughs) No, I've been looking for. I genuinely been looking forward to this because. Really interested in psychology. Really interested in psychology, just generally. I think, you know, just for my own understanding of myself and life, circumstances, everything. Um, but more specifically, um, yeah, ch- youth, children, adults as well, psychology. Because we, like, there's been so much change and drama over the last, fucking hell, decade. Just, I feel like stuff has been flipped on its head in various mm. ways. Uh, and also, I know, well, you know, I discuss quite often on your mental health, yeah. post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, just mental illness. Mm-hmm. And uh, you are very well versed in all of that from um, not only in what you do, but also your own experiences. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Jenny Murray. What do you do? What are your credentials? What do I do? How do I do it? Um, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I um, managed to somehow get a doctorate in clinical psychology when I was in my 20s. Was it? 30s, actually. I was the oldest person there uh, with two children and nobody else had children. Crucifying. Um, Is that even a thing? Yeah. Um, And I work in child and adolescent mental health primarily in the NHS, but in a very alternative way. I have a very... um, it, to, the, to the NHS, it might be controversial way of seeing mental health. To me, it's not. It's absolutely um, makes sense. Um, so I do that, and I also work privately, um, doing assessments for autism, ADHD, and family court work. So working with um, families when children get caught in the crossfire of warring parents um, and high conflict disputes. <laughs> That's the other really interesting part of my <laughs> job. <laughs> yes, I'm interested in that as well. Off air, maybe. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, moving swiftly on. on. <coughs> Excuse me. Right. So, definitely want to get into a lot of the stuff you just mentioned. 100%. Uh, um, yeah. Very interested in the alternative ways of what you're doing. Yeah. Whether we can go there or not is up to you. But let's ask. We got a question from a patron. Right. I'm not going to mention the person's name. Uh, not that they asked me not to mention the name, but I d- I, I'm just going to be sensible with this one. Um, so, uh, so question from a patron: um, What are good ways to diffuse flashpoints and calm a teenager who has occasional but serious temper flare-ups, stroke, anger issues? And this person is asking for reactive techniques rather than formal plan sessions because they've already been on the formal plan sessions road. And that's a good point because I think a lot of what I'm going to be talking about in terms of therapies and interventions is about systems around children and how they respond and how they interact with children to help deal with these flashpoints, prevent these flashpoints, but also normalise these flashpoints because teenagers are like that, aren't they? They can be little balls of stress that then explode, a bit like like a volcano that's rumbling and then all of a sudden there's an interaction, you don't quite know what you've done, but there's an explosion. So I tend to think of it in kind of traffic light mode, which is slightly... um, childish in the sense that it's used with young children you know let's think of a traffic light I'm not I don't mean it like that what I mean is when you're in the red zone you or I or anybody that is having a flashpoint and you know I'm short and red-headed and Irish so I get them you can't talk to somebody and reason with somebody when they're in that mode so think about brain capacity function executive functioning ability to think reason problem solve that absolutely does this when you're angry it declines even your intelligence in that moment will decline because we all say and do stupid things when we're angry. So there's no point. So actually your, your role there as a parent is to not shame. Absolutely not shame. Do not shame. Do not shout. Not shame. Yeah. Don't match anger with anger. I, that's really hard, actually. And sometimes I have taught my kids some of the stuff I've used with parents and children where I've kind of used either a, a traffic light or a five-point scale and said, like, I'm at a four now. Um, I can't deal with this right now because if I'm at a four, that means the next thing is the flashpoint. You tell the kids that. I've told them, yeah. I think it's really important as an adult to be transparent with your children about your own um, quirks and your own faults because children model their behaviour on our behaviour. So we have to show them how to get it wrong and what to do after you've got it wrong. So in that sort of situation, um, communication is practically zero. If anything, it's just to remove yourself or the child from that situation if it's not <coughs> safe. Um but absolutely not shaming, because we do that unwittingly, um, I think, it, because of dealing with our own stress around this sort of stuff. So I think um, 
giving space. Uh, and I think the most important thing to do with a situation like that is deal with it afterwards so it doesn't it doesn't get left because I get really cross with people that with the kids I work with who are all behavioural, um, have conduct issues and anger issues, pretty much all of them. Um, when they say that they're choosing that behaviour, that they are choosing not to engage with somebody, they are choosing not to be in school, they are choosing to swear and shout and be angry and they are choosing not to not to relate to adults positively. Nobody chooses that. Kids are not born choosing to behave in ways that make them feel ashamed and make them feel less less loved or less important or less able or less whatever, lesser. And the most important thing is what you do afterwards. So again, it depends on the relationship with a child. It depends on the context because context is everything. Um, I have an 11-year-old child. I'm going to use a lot of examples because I find it easier to pin things onto real stuff. 11-year-old um, child who, out of my three children, she's the youngest and she's more likely to be explosive but is an absolute angel in school. Literally doesn't raise an eyebrow. Um, and I've often been asked by my other children, why did you not just deal with that? You're not dealing with that. She was just rude. And I'm saying because I didn't deal with that just right now. It doesn't mean I'm not dealing with it. I was giving her space. But what I would do then is when she's calmer and comes to me, either we go out for a dog walk or we sit and have a cuddle or this child you're talking about is older, might go for a drive, go get something to eat, is acknowledge, validate. You know, I, you don't have, you're not excusing negative behaviour by saying, I can see that, 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 you know, you were obviously very angry. I didn't speak to you about it at the time because I think I wanted to give you space. I don't fully understand what's going on for you. I don't really understand why that happened. I just wanted to know if you want to talk about anything, I'm here. And you're kind of leaving out of that. So you're not shaming, you're validating and you're empathising or, you know, I can see that you, you, you know, noticing. I, I, I know that you're in a bad place. I didn't like the fact that you swore at me. I didn't like the fact that you did that. You know, obviously I don't like that, but I do understand that there's something going on that's causing you stress. And at some point it might be helpful to talk to me about it or see what we can do. So with my own child, that will almost inevitably always be, I'll always get an apology because I've really worked hard not to shame, not to kind of go, you know, do this thing to a child who's angry. Um, the not wagging. shout, the finger wagging, the, 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 you know, the disapproval, the criticism, the, um, the blaming, the shaming, you know, all of that stuff is really harmful. And, and, and I say harmful, it's harmful if you do it a lot. I and mean, we all do it a bit, let's face it, we all get it wrong sometimes. But, um, but she's really good at coming back and reflecting. She's really good at coming back and saying, I'm really, really, her new thing is, I'm truly sorry about what I just said. I'm truly sorry that I got angry. And I would say, you know, getting angry is okay. I didn't like the rudeness, that wasn't nice. Um, but look, something's going on. Something's causing you stress. I don't know if you know what it is, but we can try and figure it out. Almost always at bedtime, I'll get, I've got my sats, school's put me under pressure. My friend said this to me, this happened, I'm really worried um, about daddy, I'm really worried about you, I'm worried about grandpa. You know, the, all these things start seeping out, um, but at a time that was nowhere near the time that the, the explosion happened. Mm. So it's work in progress, and then it's understanding the context around that child. So it's, it sounds really silly, because you're a parent and you think, well, of course I know my child, but really know your child. And I say that to teachers as well, really know these pupils. What is going on in friendships? What is going on at school? Is there anything they're struggling with? Um, is there anything I'm doing to contribute? Because then I can get caught up in work and my head gets kind of hyper-focused on something and they could be chatting to me and I'm maybe not as present as I could be, but I'm very transparent about that. And if I've got it wrong, I will say I've got it wrong. I shouldn't have shouted, I shouldn't have said that's you that was about my stress I didn't like your behavior but I shouldn't have responded in that way that wasn't helpful and I'm really sorry 
And in doing that, I've got a child who will do exactly that same thing. She will reflect, she'll say sorry. Um, and the older kids kind of go, maybe you are doing something right. Maybe you're not that bad after all. Because I think people expect you to deal with something here and now straight away. And actually that can be quite harmful in terms of it doesn't resolve anything. Thinking doesn't happen rationally and logically when you're in the red zone. Um, that's why it's it's called a blind rage or whatever. You, you know, you don't see, you don't think, you don't... Um, you don't respond well. So actually, we can just make it worse. Um, when you say you talk to teachers, well, yeah. uh, so how come you end up, why do you end up talking to teachers about what? How is that? Is that part of the NHS work? It's part of the NHS work. So we talked, uh, so I said earlier about my alternative. It's not an, it's not an alternative way, actually. It's, it's a lots of psychologists thinking this way. We think um, outside of diagnostic labels. So it's not that diagnosis isn't important, because if I say that, I definitely won't have a job, and people that have a diagnosis won't feel validated. So I'll just say now I have a diagnosis of ADHD. You might seem a little bit um, flighty in when I talk about things. So I'm not anti-diagnosis. I have one. Two of my children have a diagnosis of ADHD, um, dyslexia, dyscalculia. There's things going on for them. Um, it's not about the diagnosis. The diagnosis is only one thing, but it literally is only one thing. So I have a child with ADHD who because of probably of who I am and what I know and how assertive, if you like, pushy, I can be um, in certain situations to make sure my children get what they need. I'm not, no one's getting away with it. They're going to get what they need in school. I have children who are thriving and functioning really well in school and are, are reasonably happy. The younger one with the SATs at the moment isn't so happy, but generally speaking, I know they're going to be all right. So if you just take my child, who's 16, let's say, and say ADHD and start making assumptions about what that means, you're going to get it wrong. Because I then will talk about another child who's now 18 but was 16 when I was working with him in a, an alternative school, because that's where I'm placed, at, I'm, I'm based at the moment, across alternative schools in Buckinghamshire, Aspire. Um, and those are schools for children who have been excluded from mainstream schools largely because of behaviour. Well, it's always because of behaviour. So the behaviour has been disruptive, and you hear this term persistent disruptive behaviour all the time. Um, exclusion, exclusion, exclusion. So in that child's experience, failure, failure, failure. Um, educationally, failure, failure, failure. In peer relationships, failure, failure, failure. With adults, failure, failure. With the whole thing. So end up with us. So I was working with, and this is a this is not an uncommon scenario in the in the job that I do. Um, a boy who has a diagnosis of ADHD, who's gang affiliated, so involved in crime, involved in gang associated crime. Um, you would not want to approach him on a Friday night in in um, his local area with a group of his friends, but you would absolutely, would I get him into a car with him and take him home or take him over to McDonald's? Absolutely. Um, on a one-to-one -one is a lovely kid. Um, but I facilitated a formulation session, uh, and this is what I do um, fairly routinely in my work. Formulation session is about getting people together who know this child and kind of thinking together. And my job is to facilitate the thinking and the understanding. I draw a kind of a diagram where I've got the, the child is here and then it's like a rainbow. So then you've got the peer group, the family system, the education system, and then the community. And I kind of cut it in half and put strengths on one side and difficulties on the other side. And then talk to people about, tell me what you're seeing. And in this example, this is a, a child who's got multiple risks associated with his behaviour. Really not engaging in school, really high up, if you like, in the kind of um, gang-associated stuff, which is really concerning. What do you mean high up? Advanced, you know, there's there's the sort of ranks of, you oh, know, you've got you've got yeah, you've got older people, adults who will <coughs> recruit younger children who then move up the ranks in terms of gangs. You know, it's it's horrible. 
Um, and he's fairly high up in that and involved in it and really not engaging with anything. Um, and so I brought the people in from the previous school and I said, describe to me what you saw. Tell me what you saw when he was in school, in classroom, in, um, in, a, in his peer group. And what I got was not a description. And this is when I start to try and manage me feeling cross. I didn't get a description of his behavior, which is what I'd asked for. I got an interpretation. So I got, he doesn't want to learn. He doesn't want to build friendships. He does not want relationships with adults. He is choosing his behavior. And I basically then said, right, let's go through the timeline of his life and let's have a think about that. So he was born to a drug addicted parent and left on the doorstep of a hospital and then moved around different foster homes in which he was constantly rejected because he struggled with his behavior. You've talked about, uh, you've had people on, so talking about trauma the neurochemical <coughs> status of the brain and trauma and stuff like that. My interest is is developmental trauma. So that the age naught to three is absolutely crucial for brain development. So thinking of this child in the naught to three age range, did not have a consistent adult to meet his needs, was moved around different placements, was probably had some addiction stuff, you know, drug addicted moms had probably some withdrawals. Um there have been brain imaging scans that have shown that um, children, severe, severely neglected children who are neglected during that time, eight, not to three, which is crucial for brain development, um, their brains can be up to 30% smaller. So the impact... Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I show, I show a, a, a screenshot of it on training and people look at it and they say exactly that, oh my God. Um, because that's the impact of not having that safe, consistent, nurturing care from not to three. It's not just not to three throughout childhood. What, what are the areas of the brain that aren't developed then? Well, executive functions. So executive functionings are one area. There's lots of areas. So emotional regulation. So the executive functions, I think of the front window of the brain. Executive functions. Executive functions. So planning, organising, problem solving, working memory, emotional regulation, behaviour regulation, all of those things. Um, so his executive functions will have been really not okay. So he's he's got a diagnosis of ADHD, right? So... Um, not only have we got the interpretation, which is where, which is part of the problem. So, attribution research. I'm going off on a slight tangent, Go but it's it. relevant. It's fascinating. Attri attribution research, research tells us, and I, I did this for my doctorate as well, that the way that we understand behaviour, the meaning that we apply to it, the understanding we have about it, affects how we feel about it, and then how we respond to it. So, this example is, this teacher is placing the problem within the child he doesn't want to it's a choice it's it's a stable construct he's not going to change nothing it's about him and who he is as a person um if that teacher clearly struggled to engage with this young person positively some of the teachers that, that i've worked with really struggled openly and in the school that i work in people are very reflective and transparent which is really important about how they feel about some some of the challenges with the, with the kids um so I had a member of staff in there from the current school as well, from the alternative school. And and basically she, you know, the, the school had excluded him multiple times and eventually he was with us. I then went through the timeline of his life. So there are these multiple foster homes and eventually placed with birth family who were had their own problems. So I'm not going to give specific details, but um, so the kind of the trauma, the, the adversity continued. So his needs weren't met through parenting. His needs were not met throughout his childhood. And then he got a diagnosis of ADHD because, of course, he's going to meet criteria because he's impulsive and he's not regulated and he's not concentrating, weirdly, on school because he was put into school like other kids at the age of four or five and asked to formally learn and apply his executive functions in the same way as the child there who did not experience any of those traumas. So 
the point I suppose being, I get very frustrated when I go to meetings and we talk about, you know, this child is, you know, we're kn known to be criminally exploited or sexually exploited and is involved in drugs or running and is involved in gangs. You know, Jenny, they've, you know, he's got ADHD. Do we want to kind of get the medication sorted? I'm like, wait, what? I'm sorry, what? Have, have we lost the plot here or something? ADHD medication is about helping you to focus. If you haven't got the very basics of an ability to, to form an attachment or to, to, to trust adults enough to help you to regulate yourself, to, to you know, of course ADHD medication isn't going to help. So we've kind of, my, my difficulty, my challenge with mental health services and particularly um, child and adolescent, uh, which is why I've been doing the job that I'm doing because I've shouted about this long enough um, that people listened, helpfully, um, is that everything's sort of based in mental health services around disorders and criteria for disorders. A bit like, you know, you go to your doctor and you've got these aches and pains, you get a series of questions and your symptoms are checked against the BNF or whatever, or the whatever they check them against, um, ICD-10, actually. Um, and it's like, right, you meet criteria, this is what your disorder is. And that's the same way that child and adolescent services are, are organised. So I have... Um, done a slightly informal audit of the children that are in our alternative schools and, and as much as these schools are great they're not where children should be had they got the right support you know children shouldn't be excluded from school for behavior if you don't understand what's driving the behavior and you don't provide the, the support they didn't arrive at the age of 12 because we're secondary um, pro with these problems they, these difficulties were there the warning signs were there the risk factors were there most of the children that we work with in our, in our alternative schools have been known to or referred into CAM services, so CAMS, Child and Adolescent Mental Health, have been referred into social services. The concerns have been evident since they were four or five, usually, or six. But the referrals have gone in, and what I see time and time again is um, doesn't meet criteria for mental health service. Um, this is behavioural, um, signpost to parenting. How mad is that? Uh, just in that language, behavioural is mental health. Behavioural is mental, you know, when you look at, I'm not talking about mental health and the way that people use the term mental health and the, so you continue to use the term mental health as if that <coughs> term in itself is a negative thing. Oh, I've got mental health. As in, you mean you meant, yeah, you've got mental health. We've all got mental health. We've, yeah, yeah, we've yeah. got good mental but health and we've got... Behavioural issues is an indicator of a mental health issue. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Temporary or, or, or long term, I don't yes. want to say permanent, but you know. And crazy. What, and, but but there's, there's, two, there's two parts of that problem. Part of the problem is that when you see the behaviour as just behaviour and then you respond in that way. So schools, for example, the reason I'm seconded into schools, for these schools, is to help them think psychologically informed and trauma-informed practice and also to kind of, um, about how to meet these, these children's needs and how to see behaviour through the lens of trauma and adversity. You know, a child behaves negatively because they're not coping with something that's stressing them out or multiple things or because maybe they've had a series of difficulties in their lives earlier on and they haven't developed the regulatory systems. I mean, Mandy talked about that in Podcast 99, I think. Number 99, well done you, Mandy Boston. Yeah, yeah. So Mandy goes into a lot of the science around it and I'm not going to go into the science around it. Suffice to say, there is a lot of science around it, around trauma and about the systems in the brain that are on fire when, or underperforming actually, depending, um, when, when a child is experiencing stress. Stress is toxic, it's biochemically toxic. And when a child is repeatedly stressed, biochemically toxic, you're looking. Oh, yeah, explain. So it changes the, the chemicals in the brain, the chemicals in the structure of the brain. And that's why I talk about developmental trauma, not just, so we, we talked earlier about like PTSD in adults. So we talked about me being on a plane and having really on the icebreaker 
Yeah, yeah, yeah the icebreaker. Yeah. Um, and <coughs> thinking the plane was going to crash and, you know, generally feeling I might die and it was really horrible. And that has caused some, some symptoms that even now on a plane I still get, I have to really work hard on breathing and focusing on stuff because I know I'm having a, a trauma response when, when there's turbulence, so it's still happening. That's, that is one type of trauma. I'm also talking about children who don't consistently get their, their needs met. So I, I put a lot of stuff on Facebook, you'll notice, and maybe when I start doing that now, you'll, you'll understand more about why. Something about children don't experience trauma because of pain. They experience trauma because they're alone with their pain. They don't have an emotionally available adult consistently enough to meet their needs um, as a child. And that in itself is catastrophically harmful to children when they're adults. And so the family court work that I do is often about looking at families where there is breakdown, children at risk of care, um, parental conflict and high conflict separations and how the children get caught in all of that. Um, is often about parents who've not, for their own trauma needs or mental health needs or whatever, neurodevelopmental needs, haven't been able to consistently meet the needs of their children. So the adults in a child's life are crucially important. And when the children don't have those adults, which is why in the icebreaker I mentioned your parents because it's not always just about your own parents if your parents aren't functioning well for whatever reason it's really important that you have other people around you that can meet those emotional needs nobody experiences anything right and then sits alone with it so something happens something really awful happens you don't sort of drive home here i'm sure and kind of talk to yourself and have an internal dialogue you normally phone someone and it will normally be somebody that generally responds quite well to that You're, no Women, maybe. I think men. I think men do internalize it. I think. I think we all do internal dialogue, but we tend to share stuff with people. You tend to tell people. I came here today, and within five minutes of sitting down here, we were talking about something. I'm not going to say what. <laughs> yeah, you shared yeah. it with me. Yeah, and you said we need to talk about this, and we will talk about it later. I, I did. I definitely did not say we need to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did. I want a nice relaxed tell you, afternoon. <laughs> I'll tell you I think you might have said, I'll tell you more about it later. Maybe that's you talking at oh, me and maybe. saying nothing. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's yeah, yeah, what your talking yeah. the thing is about. But we're having a conversation about something no one knows what we're talking about, yeah. so let's get off that. I know, yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> the point being, generally speaking, people need to share stuff that they're feeling. Good stuff as well. You know, you win some money or you bet on the horses and it wins. You tell someone, you're like, oh, this happened, it's amazing. You don't sort of sit there generally and just kind of, Talk, you know, to keep it to yourself. Um, but yes, of course, internal dialogue happens. I do it all the time. Um, so yeah, so that that's the point. Now I've now I've lost track. Where was I? I was talking about biochemically to toxic. Uh, you were talking about um, kids not, uh, having a, emotionally available adults in their yeah. life, and you went on to mention my parents. And you were talking about it's not just the parents. Yeah. And and children not having emotionally available adults in their life can be catastrophic when they're adults. Yeah. yeah. So that systemic diagram I talked about earlier where I think about the individual needs of the child, the peer group, the family, the, the education system, all of those areas of your life can, can traumatise you. So, for example, one of the things I put on um, Facebook recently was about the education system um, and how we're facing a mental health crisis. And again, this is the buzzword, the mental health crisis. It's always been there. There's always been a problem with the education system and how it's set up to meet the needs of children who are in this sort of narrow-ish um, category of um, age-appropriate functioning. So lots of testing. So I think it's wrong to test four-year-olds 
who should be playing. I think it's absolutely wrong. You mean just educational testing? Education is yeah. testing. Yeah, you test four-year-olds. You put them in classrooms to sit down and, and formally learn, and then you test them, and then you compare them to other children, and you say they're not um, they're not re reaching their developmental targets, and, and therefore from the very from the very very young age, you're compared against other people, according to this this sort of what's been decided is is age appropriate. My point about age appropriateness is, and I and I talk to people about this when they refer to me for um, autism. Age appropriate standards, you mean, right? Yeah. So you should be achieving at this age, Tommy. Yeah. You should be achieving seventy five percent in this test. Yeah. Oh, you're not. That means you're a moron. You're not. Yeah. Something's going wrong. So you know marathons, right? You get marathon. You've got twenty six miles, and if you're a betting person, would you bet on within the first five miles that you know John is here and. Betty is here. Betty. Um, would you then bet, okay, well, John's going to win it. Because John's in the lead. Because John's in the lead within yeah. five miles. Yeah. Within five miles? Oh, uh, what? First five miles? Yeah. Oh, not necessarily. No. No. Because actually what we know oh, about Oh, yeah, I would actually. I, I would. would. I, I would. Well, you, He's a bloke no against a woman. <gasps> what? Hang okay. on. He's a... Yeah. We're my money's gone on... on the wrong track. Before they even start off, my money's gone on John. Of course it has. That's another podcast. Derailed that example. Didn't oh, no, 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 right. you did. John point, and Jeffrey. Being, John and Jeffrey. John and Jeff. Yeah, let's have. Okay. Betty and Louise. <laughs> Louise is in the front, Betty's in the, in the back, and it's five miles, but they're all quite bunched together at this point because yeah. it's only the first five I miles. I wouldn't right? choose when it's too early on. You wouldn't. It's too early on because actually by the end, Louise, I think it was Betty at the back. Oh, I can't remember who's at the back. Let's just say Betty's at the back. She's got quite a good game plan, and, 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 and she's, you know, she's the sort of runner that actually takes time to warm up. She's not quite ready to be first yet, so she's going to warm up. So by mile 23, she's in the front, and then I might place a bet. It wouldn't be good odds, but I'd place a bet. The point of this <laughs> really odd tangent is that child development is exactly the same. So particularly within the first seven years, when you're thinking about cognitive development, um, emotional development, readiness to learn is really important, and it's not thought about. Um, it's like a marathon. It's like you could have a child, and, and I say this to parents who ask me to cognitively test their child when they're five. No, is the answer. Somebody will, somebody will take your money to do that, but I won't. Because actually there's so much that influences learning um, in a classroom and cognitive development that it's, it's too early, unless there's really clear, serious, significant needs. I wasn't ready to learn until, until my early, very early 20s. Yes. Exactly. My very, I was not ready to learn, and yeah. something changed in yeah. me, and I was like a sponge. We're talking reading a book in three or four fucking days, yeah. like a non-stop. I went through dozens of books for yeah. over a couple of years, dozens and dozens and dozens of books, yeah. non-stop. In my twenties, I remember thinking, I remember thinking at the time, thinking, Christ, am I? Why wasn't I like this yeah. in college? Because I binned off college after year one, or after three or two. And, and secondary school yeah. completely Ready, fucked it up readiness to learn so, so the I, and yeah I was good in primary school yeah you know anyway. well things get more things get more serious and I, I guess in secondary school there's more emphasis on self-directed learning and autonomy uh, and less well there's less autonomy generally in the education system but I suppose the point being that if you start making assumptions about your child when they're four five or six about their cognitive ability and people are very focused on this is my child bright you know I get people asking me to do cognitive assessment, assessments to see if the child is gifted and are they high-functioning. And what does high-functioning mean? Because you might have a high-functioning autistic adult, and we get, I get asked this as well when I assess adults um, or children and children. It, does that, my child has autism, so does that mean they're high-functioning? Like, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that they're kind of intelligent. And I said, well, that <laughs> if we just use intelligence and we think of like Aspergery, high-functioning people that probably run the country and stuff... <coughs> 
are they high functioning just because they're intelligent? Well, maybe if you're using intelligence to, to kind of classify it, but actually if that high functioning person, and this is really common, is crippled with anxiety in every situation they go into because they're having to overthink and overplan and, and just micro analyze every aspect of social interaction because it doesn't come naturally that to me is not high functioning they would not say they're high functioning but they might have a really good job and be intelligent and articulate and be able to do the to and fro conversation because they've learned how to apply it but it takes huge huge effort it's the difference between somebody climbing a mountain with um uh, a, a straight path or a a lift or something versus somebody climbing that same mountain with a big heavy bag of bricks and a zigzaggy path. It's so much harder. It's stressful. It's tiring. And they might give up. Tangent. Yes. Do, uh, do you, do you look at people in the public eye and in inverted commas, high functioning and go, Hmm, I know what's wrong with you or I know why you're like that. Um, sometimes you ask this. Elon a lot Musk. <laughs> Elon Musk. Elon <laughs> you Musk. Get, you get asked this a lot. I don't. I don't know. Yes and no. Sometimes I get asked a lot. If I, when I meet people, uh, it's very difficult when you're on the um, dating scene. And you say you're a psychologist. <laughs> Immediately, people think that you're a a twat. And B, what, you're going to judge everyone. Yeah, and because you're going to judge everyone, you're going to sit on your little golden throne and go, "Oh, you've got that." I think I th that. I th I thought this about you though. <laughs> Have you? What am I trying? Well, no, that you that you constantly analyse. No, not I, at all. I, not I, at all. I, I, I remember going. I've I've said I've I've recalled this uh, little anecdote many a time. We were in Reading. We went for lunch somewhere. Um, I th I can't remember. It was after my first or second time out to Afghan. Um, I can't remember what the occasion was. And we sat there and you said, oh, um, so how long have you been back? You uh, said, it's not about Afghan. I said, oh, yeah, I've just, yeah, I've just come back about um, three weeks ago. And your response to that was, how did that make you feel? <laughs> <laughs> I always check in my mind. I think that is not, that so is, that, so, that so is I not would what say... someone would say to that question unless you're a fucking psychologist. Maybe, because I think being a psychologist for me is about curiosity. A lot of it is about curiosity, but it's not about making judgments what i didn't say to you was you must be traumatized do you need to see a mental health expert do you, have trauma? Do you, want, me, do you want to do a che yeah. checklist should yeah. i give you a questionnaire do you yeah. want some medication yeah. that's not i didn't assume that because you came back from afghanistan that you were going to be traumatized and struggling however i'm curious i'm genuinely curious about people so i i wonder what it's like to be all that time away and then be adjusting back to this i, I don't mind it now but then yeah i'd answer that now yeah. but only because of again same thing curiosity and understanding of my own self-awareness mm. my own emotions why i'm why i'm the way i am you know? but i think that's also what being a psychologist is about because you cannot be you cannot understand other people's experiences and behaviors if you can't hold a mirror up to your own and most many i'm saying most everyone's gonna kill me now um many psychologists therapists people that work in mental health um have had their own experiences and that's led them to that place and I'm going to go back to the mental health services stuff because the, the issue I have is exactly what you said. Behaviour is not just behaviour. Behaviour is a communication of a need. And what mental health services tend to do is, is I think, further distress people in many ways. You know, I'm working with a 15-year-old who's had lots of traumas and who's been open and closed to CAMS. 
and the message to her and to do distress tolerance work, which is I don't know why I'm doing that, which is kind of like when you're self-harming instead of cutting yourself, ping an elastic band or do some breathing, use mindfulness, helpful things. Nothing wrong with them. Really helpful. I use them myself, not elastic bands, but, you know, breathing. stuff. Um, but basically, she's experienced significant trauma and trauma that needs something really more sophisticated like EMDR, which is a trauma treatment that's really effective and evidence based. But she's not been offered that. She has now because I'm involved, but she, she hasn't been offered it. She's been referred in in a sort of a knee jerk way. Um, no, keep going. Okay, sorry. I'm just um, adjust the aircon. Okay. Uh, referred, referred in a sort of a knee jerk way when something's gone a bit wrong. So she's self harmed or she's not gone to school or she's kind of um, acted at home in a way that's upset her parents. And then they refer to get, get sent her to CAMS to sort it out. Um, child and adolescent mental health service will see her do a bit of distress tolerance work and then send her off on her way the problem is plaster on a broken arm stuff it's kind of what's un what's underlying that why this is just going to keep happening so she's completely lost faith in cam services and um, had never really told her story um, until, until we started talking about it so I took her for a drive because I just find car therapy with teenagers is amazing because you don't have to look at them There's no, you're not in a formal room and a formal therapy for teenagers is really tough it's awkward it's awkward for me you've got to give eye contact you've got to sit in a room it's, 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 there's sometimes silences it's a bit difficult so taking, I took her home um, from school and during that 45 minute journey learned so much about her and about her life and it's moving discussions about what's wrong with you so, like, do you have a diagnosis to what happened to you? What happened to you in your life that distressed you? Who was there for you? What's worked well? What hasn't? What do you need? And that, that, those are the conversations I have with kids. So, you know, kicking a, a classroom around and leaving the, the classroom. I'm just going to give an example of where it doesn't help. Um, so a bit like your, the question earlier about what do I do in those flashpoints? So I've seen practice whereby the child, you know, leaves the classroom in a you know, a bit of a dramatic way, um, kicking stuff over, swearing, shouting. And they're then in a, in a communal area where there's other kids and staff. And somebody, an adult, follows them around a bit like this, shouting. Wagging the finger. If you continue to behave like this, I'm going to exclude you. He's already been excluded multiple times. He doesn't care. He doesn't want to be here anyway. Um, but shouting, which is shaming. He's, he's, he's amongst peers. You know, this is not okay. Losing face when you're a teenager is not okay. Um and I put my hand up at one point to the to the teacher and just said, just one second. And I just went up to him and I'd already uh, developed a bit of a relationship with him through an assessment I did with him and some work I did with his mum. And I just said to him, listen, do you want to just go over here and take him away from that goldfish bowl where everybody's looking at him and his behaviour and he's feeling ashamed, but he's acting like he's not because he can't lose face and therefore he has to be aggressive and he has to be shouty and tell everyone to F off and tell the head teacher he's a what's it. Um, and just take him away and just say, I, I'm, 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 I'm so sorry to see that you're this upset, but that I just needed to take, take you away and have a chat. Um, what do you need? What do you need from me right now? And he just said, I'm just, the teacher asked me to do something, I couldn't do it, and they know I can't do it, and I've told them time and time I can't do it, and they keep asking me to do it, it's an academic thing. Um, and I just lost it, I lost the plot. And I said, and then you came out here, having lost the plot, and I said, and I'm not sure that you got what you needed, so I acknowledge, not criticising, but I'm kind of acknowledging. Didn't get what you needed. That must have been a bit shameful, actually, in front of everyone. He was like, he's like, yeah, he's a prick, he's this, that, and the other. Sorry for my language. That's what he said. Um, 
Um, and, you know, and, and I said acknowledging actually that sometimes the adults get it wrong. Sometimes the adults do get it wrong. They don't deal with that very well. And, and, I, and I've said things like, well, like, there's, look, there's been times I haven't dealt with stuff like that well. You know, people are trying their best. They do want to support you. But actually, it's just sometimes people have their own stress. Um, and then going from a point of, like, can you manage there's seven minutes left of the lesson? Can you manage seven minutes of that lesson? Can you go back and we can try and work it out? And then afterwards, it's break time anyway, and we can have a bit of a chat or go out for a walk. And he managed to go back in and do the seven minutes. And then by that time, he was there. That, you know, he was there for the day, and, and he was better. But for that day anyway um but there's other times i've seen him run out of school and not come back because of being followed around wiggly finger it's not helpful but that child has been referred in to cams multiple times and declined because he doesn't meet criteria for a serious mental a significant mental health disorder yet mm. that's the point because harm is cumulative so the adults that i see with complex trauma for example where there's difficulties with regulation with you know fluctuating mental health difficulties as we understand them but the ult ultimately the, the the underlying issues are a multitude of adverse experiences that have accumulated and had a massive impact and i'm as much as i'm sometimes critical of the diagnostic sort of approach i know it's needed we need to have you know systems whereby we recognize this fits into this category so therefore we can develop evidence-based treatments and we can know what might work well with children though i just feel we need to be far more trauma-informed and we need to be on it with behavior the, the children who are behavioral are the ones that need us the most they are the ones that get rejected excluded and further traumatized because you're going into schools then and they're failing and failing and failing and many of the systems that are in place to deal with that are behavioral as in uh, punitive sorry so isolation rooms what's that about i've worked with children who've had who've experienced trauma who have not managed in a classroom who've not been able to learn who've been a bit disruptive or chatty and then had an emotional outburst and then been sent to isolation to sit in a room i've even known uh, where schools have made those rooms a bit like this so no windows dark no this is bright you know what i mean um just a dark s space just to sit against and facing a wall what does that do what does that do i saw a clip when i did some trauma-informed schools training about um of a teenager who just found out mum had terminal cancer and spoke to her teacher about it and i can't be here i can't i can't cope i, I can't sit in this classroom um go to the toilet sort yourself out go to the toilet and sort yourself out what that girl needs right then is, is, a, is an emotionally available adult somebody to even just sit with her and know that somebody's there not necessarily talking it's not necessarily therapy it's not a cams referral somebody right there to say it's okay i'm here i'm with you now i, I get it that there's not the resources <coughs> in schools but there could be and things could be set up differently mm. The diagnosis thing's interesting. I, I think I know. I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, the, so the the other podcast, I know you haven't got around to yet, uh, was with Mark Gordon. It started it, yeah. Right. So Mark will say, I don't know if he says it on the podcast, but he's definitely said it to me in conversation. Um, but Mark will say that he doesn't believe in PTSD. And you listen to that phrase, and you go, "Fucking hell, mate, that's a bit <laughs> fucking." For someone who yeah. deals with people yeah. who suffer from PTSD, you go, "Jesus Christ!" He doesn't. <coughs> what, he, what he means is. I think what he means is that term PTSD, there isn't a finite set of symptoms that are allocated to a PTSD and that's what you've got. Uh, so it's not so it's not that you've got 
it's just a label. The point is making it's just a label. And I think what I see now from my own experience, when I say my own experience, I mean my own experience, listening and talking to people, reading, watching things, and my own like mental experiences, is that you've got... Back, this is all back to your labelling point, I think, if, if I'm going to read what you're yeah. saying. Right, is The way I see it is you've got all these different symptoms, um, issues, symptoms that uh, that that uh, manifest themselves. You know, mentioned them. Anxiety, fucking lack of focus, all these little, the, the baseline behavioural things or um, cognitive abilities that, that are either good or bad or in the middle. And... Especially on the with the PTSD front, on the di- on the diagnoses part, <coughs> we tend to end up assigning a label and producing a diagnosis based on the mechanism of the injury as opposed to what they all are. So back to Mark Gordon's point is, I think his point on it is he doesn't believe in PTSD. His point is that you this is a this is a whole range of these these um, uh, uh, issues symptoms and. Instead of looking at the diagnosis, which is PTSD, to try and fix it, look at the symptoms, look at what the issues are, and go to the root cause of what, go try and get to the root cause of what caused those, and and and, and approach it that way. Because when you, a lot of the time, I think as well, when you uh, uh, assign a diagnosis of PTSD or ADHD, it quite often seems like, oh, full stop, that's that mm. done then. Yeah. Oh, that's the medica- ADHD, yeah, medication for that. that. And you're all sorted, medication for the rest of your life. Yeah. No, not, so nothing not changes if nothing changes, which yeah. is a stupid statement, but a really important one, because actually that's exactly the point, and I agree with him on that sense. It's not it's not necessarily that I don't believe in PTSD or I don't believe in anxiety or depression, because that can feel invalidating for people who are really struggling. Exactly. And I wouldn't want to invalidate anyone, and I've been through periods of struggling myself, and, and, and not to the point of needing or wanting mental health services, but I understand what it's like to feel that low or really anxious about something or be in a plane that you think is going to crash so so there's been moments of it um and i wouldn't want somebody to go well that doesn't exist sorry about that um next point uh, that's not very validating the, the, i suppose the point is that the diagnosis is one thing what it helps us understand really is that this person is presenting with symptoms that are quite significant and are impacting on them in a certain way and according to the manuals this leads this is the label we give it and according to that label we know that these treatments work that in itself is problematic because the evidence base is biased because lots of money is put into certain treatments, um, medication, don't even start me, but it has its place to a degree, um, but it is, in my view, really over overused and overemphasised as, as an effective treatment in the long term. Um, and actually, one person with a diagnosis of PTSD or anxiety will present very, very differently to another one. So if you don't look at somebody in the context of their life and help them in those areas of their lives, you are not going to help by giving them a tablet. And you're not even going to help by just putting them in a therapy room and saying, change the way you think about it, because that's what CBT says you should do. Do some breathing in that moment when you're anxious. Yeah, fine, great. But take an example of somebody who's got a maybe autism ADHD, a neurodevelopmental condition that changes, you know, that affects the way they think and how they manage situations. And they go into a workplace that is set up in a certain way for neurotypical people who don't have those struggles. And the environment cannot adapt to their needs. So, like, if you need, for example, you're in an open plan office and you really would prefer to not be because it's overwhelming. If there are kind of expectations of, like, social stuff at work that you're expected to go to because that's your job, but you really struggle with that and no one lets you, you know 
off that. If, if the work environment doesn't adapt and, and I take that autistic person and I take them into a room and say, well, firstly, I'm going to diagnose you with autism. You have that. Secondly, I'm um, going to do nothing else. I'm, I'm, we can talk about what's difficult. Actually, we can do some talking therapy. Let's talk about the struggles at work. Okay, so every day I go into work and every day the same thing happens and every day it's, it's stressing me out and nothing is changing. Talking about it isn't going to change it, is it? The same with schools. So the children that end up in our alternative provision end up in our alternative schools because nothing has changed to meet their needs in the previous school, right? Nothing has changed. They're still expected to learn in the same way, to sit for as long, to manage the same volume as work as all the other kids, but they are not like all the other kids because some of them have autism, ADHD, learning difficulties. They can't learn at the same pace. They might be traumatised. They might literally be taking all of their effort to get in the gates of that school in the first place and by the time they get there they're spent they're out of you know they've, they've run out of steam and they're expected to stay there all day and they can't so then they they are disruptive or they walk out of class and they get excluded so the alternative to that would be rather than just dealing with the behavior as a behavior what is it that is driving the behavior and that's kind of my job so yes I work with the alternative schools to to help you know evolve I suppose trauma-informed practice across the schools to help identify the needs that haven't been identified in the previous school because there's a lack of resources and people that can't pay for private assessments often don't get any assessments um, because that's the way the system is starting to work unfortunately or they don't get them in time because a two or three year waiting list is not good enough um, and that in itself causes more harm so part of my job is to kind of look at the sort of um, not just the kids that end up in our school the ones who are at risk of and go into those schools and say have you thought about this do you know this child do you know what's happening at home do you know you know I went into one school and, and they were saying you know he's got ADHD and he's obviously not taking his medication and he's absolutely kicking off and kicking chairs around and kicking off at everyone and this is the term that's used it's not my term I got told off recently for using the term kicking off and I was like, all the kids use that term that's, that's their language I'm going with it um he obviously hasn't taken his medication. And I said, and that's it. That's the only thing we understand of this behaviour. Have you phoned mom? Have you spoken to the social worker? Because there's a social worker. Um, did made some phone calls. The child the previous night had had a social worker and the police to the family home to remove the younger siblings from the home and into care. Oh God! Now that's not ADHD. That's a crap experience for that child, and he's traumatised and he's scared. And being in school right now doing maths, English and science isn't priority on his list. And he can't focus. And to exclude him and send him off to a school that's at for, for the kids that get excluded is not helping. It's harming. So it is about reaching out to schools and saying, well, how can you be more trauma-informed? How can you understand this more? You don't have to be an expert, Hugh, to understand that certain experiences a child has are upsetting, distressing, toxically stressful sometimes, and cumulatively harmful. We're all humans. We all know... But how much of a barrier to that that kind of the way they should be supported that you're suggesting there? How much of a barrier to that is the schools? Uh, one of the, the schools need to also churn out high grades, put it off their report. Stop it! Huh, oh, you know, I know. Well, this is, you know, the the system that we have. Blame it on the government. Blame it on the other government. Blame it on all of them. I don't know, but it's kind of. I feel like it's a um, public schoolboy system. Everybody's the same. The volume of work has increased. I think the curriculum is more content heavy. 
It has to be delivered in, a, in, in the same way, at the same pace. All of the content has to be delivered, regardless of your skills and interest. I think there's a bit of a tokenistic, you know, they're, they're, um, they're really, really clever and they like art. But forget about that. That's like arty stuff isn't cool. Um, we're all focusing on the academic as if like artistic subjects aren't academic or you don't, if you're only interested in the arts, you're not clever. There's, there is this idea, I think. And the academia and tests and exams, which actually often are a test of memory, uh, how much could you re retain and then produce out in, on this exam, um, is a measure of how clever you are. Whereas actually, some of the most, some of the smartest people I know, or have known, haven't been, haven't, haven't got doctorates. They're not, they haven't been to university. They may be left without, um, without qualifications. Maybe because they weren't ready, like you said, you weren't ready to learn at that time, you weren't ready to apply yourself. Not everybody is, and the school system, the way it is set up, does not work for everyone. I recently, um, I recently supported a girl whose parents, her mum, so mum and nan, had, I, I later found <coughs> out, spent months and months saving for this private assessment, because they thought it might be ADHD, because she's predicted to achieve absolutely zero in her GCSEs, which are starting in May this year. She's 16. And so I did an assessment, and then I quickly realised she doesn't have... So ASD, autism. She doesn't have autism. Um, and then I realised that there's probably some learning difficulties, possibly ADHD, and this family can't afford even the assessment they're doing now. So I did the rest of the assessment for nothing. I did a full cognitive assessment. I did a full ADHD assessment, and... The um, outcome of that was that she has a very variable IQ, so kind of verbally really low, as in bottom 1%. So probably has a speech and language need there. Um, Non-verbally, so practical stuff, um, problem solving without using language, average, 85, 90, 90 to 100 is average. Um, and that, so that's really good, that's a, st a strength. Working memory, about average, processing speed, really, really low, again, bottom 1%. What that tells you right there is a specific learning difficulty. She's not globally low ability. She has areas of strength and areas of weakness, difficulty, probably dyslexia, possibly speech and language disorder. She's not autistic. I'm amazed she's in school. I'm amazed that she stayed there. And I said that to her. I said, hats off to you for actually going in day in, day out with no support. And it turns out she didn't have any support. So she wasn't identified as, ha as having special educational needs. I read the, the piece of paper that said um, is not predicted to achieve anything at GCSEs and yet you're still going to get her to sit them. Mental. You know she's going to sit them and you know she's going to fail every single one. I mean, and I'm not even talking low grades, I'm talking ungraded. And at what point in this five years of having this child under your roof did you not think that she has a special educational need, at least one, or needs some sort of assessment? Schools don't have the resources and they don't have the money and they've been stripped back and everything's emphasised, like you said, on achievements. So the top, the top people, that's what we're focusing on and Ofsted are going in and it's all about achievement, achievement, achievement by the time you're 16, as if you can't continue to learn beyond that. Um, and so I wrote to the school and I said, um, I think she must have got this wrong. Um, they seem to think that she hasn't got any SEM needs. Here's her report, here's her diagnoses, here's her profile of scores, here's the... Um, this is not a child that should be failing everything. And if she has the right support in place, then she'll be able to achieve something. But actually what she probably needed was to be recognised as having SEM, to have the assessments done, to have a plan of place in place, and to be given that support and maybe a reduced timetable or slightly alternative timetable, some of the subjects that she's doing, um, to be kind of given more foundation um, level or given additional support. 
there is a there is a system um, whereby certain children meet criteria for special measures and exams. So extra time, somebody to scribe for them, somebody to read out the um, questions if they struggle with that. Lots of things can be done, um, and this child was given nothing. My daughter is 16 and was identified as having dyslexia and ADHD, and I'm her mum, and I know what she needs, and I made sure, A, I got, got into good schools, as in, and when I say good, I don't mean private, I mean good state schools that do this well, um, and made sure she had the support, and she's gone from thinking she was going to be like that child and fail everything, what's the point, to getting sevens, eights and nines in her mocks, which are in our old school terms, A's, A stars, A stars, stars, and literally smashing it, because she's had the right support. That is the difference between that child and that child, and that is not okay. That is what makes me really cross, as you can probably tell, because that's about the competency and the willingness of the school to identify the needs, to put the work in, to maybe use some of the funding to make sure the assessments are done, where you have a parent who doesn't know, and her, her, her mum doesn't know what she has or what she doesn't have, because mum has her own learning needs and possibly speech and language needs. So mum is not able to advocate for her child in the way that she wants to, because she definitely wants to, because she doesn't know what it is she's meant to be doing. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very depressing. It's very depressing, Hugh. It's very depressing, and it's getting worse. Why is it getting worse? Well, it's getting worse. I just read something um, the other day that the government are looking to um, make sure that by 2030 or something, is it? What even year are we in? 2022? Anyway, in the next 10 years... 90% of students will leave school with um, this level of um, competency in English and maths and science. I just, it's just, it, if that's your focus as a government right now, if that's the message that you're giving us about where our children need to be when they're 16, you have totally lost the plot. Well, have already anyway, but in this particular situation, because actually what part of the problem is that the schools are not funded enough and resourced well enough to, to help the children who have barriers to learning, but actually with the right support could be achieving those things. So they're not setting out how they're going to make sure they're doing that. What they're doing is just more testing, more Ofsted inspections, more content. You know, the teachers that I've spoken to have said the content that they have to teach now has got so voluminous. It's, it's so difficult for them to get through it. Give me an example. Uh, what do you mean? Example of what? What, what, do you mean, what do you mean voluminous then? Content, the content of the curriculum itself. It's just shitloads. Just yeah. absolutely tons of stuff. So COVID in some ways has helped my daughter's year group in that they've had to strip away some of the content. So <coughs> where they were learning sort of these three major topics, for example, they're now just doing two, they're focusing on two and focusing on quality. Um, and that's really important. And I think quality has gone out of it and quantity is the thing. How many GCSEs you can get, how many exams, how many hours of studying. My 11-year-old has gone on Easter break with her school telling her to do an hour a day of SATs practice. And every single day they're just doing SATs, 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 SATs. It's nothing to do with her needs. That's to do with the school evidencing that their children are achieving. And my daughter is not going to be doing hours and hours of SATs practice during Easter holidays. She's going to have some fun and some family time. And that's it. She will do some. But it's not happening. And I just said to her, it's not, this is not about you, Lily. It's about the school needing this. So she's getting so stressed by it, like unbelievably stressed, crying like randomly like out, out of the blue. The, the little outbursts are getting more frequent because she's got the sats looming. And that's what, this, that, that's what the education system is doing. And she is a child who arguably is well supported with competent parents who know how to support her, who can afford to, to pay for private tutors if needed, who, who can advocate for her in the school, who can have the conversations with them, making sure she gets her needs met, because she also has um, 
some some um, identified needs that she can get extra time and a separate room and stuff, which is helpful. And the school are great with that. But if I wasn't advocating for her in that way, she would be the next child in a pro or an alternative school or in CAMS with mental health difficulties because that's what happens. It's just toxically stressful for children in schools where they can't cope with mainstream learning the way that it's delivered. And that's not because they're not clever. You didn't apply yourself, you said, in school. That's not because you're not clever. You know, people often do their learning after school is finished and in adulthood, and the brain develops up to the age of 25. So actually taking that developmental perspective, the marathon running, you know, you might be at the, at the back up until the age of 20 even, and then go, do you know what, like you said, bang, suddenly your brain is, is ready to learn and it kind of activates all the things that need to be activated. And because you've been well supported in other areas, you're then able to go and apply it. Mm. Education is depressing, very depressing in my view. Mm. And I think that's why the, the kind of the people with the, the more affluent families, the more support, more money behind them, more competent parents are the ones that are going to get ahead, if you like, in education. And not only that, the ones that don't have that support or understanding or, um, you know, have that are going to be the ones that end up in alternative education involved in, well, poor outcomes. Poor outcomes could mean not having good jobs, being involved in crime, teenage pregnancies. There's all kinds of things, all kinds of negative outcomes. And, and the children in alternative education, where I'm based now, most of them are from those kinds of um, situations, those settings, you know, the families in crisis, um, areas that are kind of deprived, uh, parents who have mental health problems or drug problems, children who've been in care, who've been traumatised, or children with unidentified educational needs who've had to try and cope in a system that hasn't recognised that they need a different way of learning or a bit of extra support, and over time they just vote with their feet and they're out. I'm going to pause a minute while I fill my glass. Refill my glass. Um, okay, back. Glass is refilled on St. George's Day. That's what we're celebrating, St. George's Day, isn't it? As two non-English people. Yeah, I'd be celebrating St. Patrick's Day probably more. And potentially an Arsenal win later today. Oh, yeah, 3-1. Anyway, right, back on topic. So uh, let's let's delve. We haven't got a little bit of time left, so let's delve into, to right view, um issues with <coughs> diagnosis or what diagnosis can inhibit or do you want to elaborate on the diagnosis problem or yes. problems that can arise i guess part of it is the people that i work with as in families that i support are often very frustrated by child and adolescent mental health services they feel that they're not getting the support that they need from them and I, and i guess my point is that sometimes that's because they are sort of developed on the basis of a diagnosis so if the child doesn't have a diagnosis, then the message almost to the parent is there's not a problem, but there clearly is a problem because they sought help. So it's trying to navigate that is, is, one, is one difficult thing. Um, it's also trying to understand, I'm not anti-diagnosis completely. I wouldn't be, I have one. Um, and I work with people and I diagnose people. I'm not anti that, it's just understanding what that can actually offer and what it can't offer and understanding what thera being therapeutic means. Because being therapeutic doesn't necessarily mean sending the child to CAMS or into private therapy into a room with an adult to sort th themselves out and come back all better. Life doesn't work like that, and it certainly doesn't work like that for teenagers. So I think a lot of what parents need with um, their children is understanding 
knowledge is power. Knowledge gives you the, the basis of understanding why the child is behaving like this. And also the kind of, to use the term normal, you know, teenagers are moody and can be difficult and almost kind of revert back to toddler-type brains. The world centres around them. It's very difficult for them to reason and to compromise and to see your perspective. And that's, that's a normal part of adolescent development. Your job, I guess, as a parent is to hold that space as excuse me as consistently as you can so it's not about not addressing behavior but a little bit like i gave the example before not it's addressing it at the right time and in the right way um so i think a lot of you know if i've got a, a german shepherd i've spent a fortune on puppy training for that dog understanding her breed understanding what makes her anxious understanding the impact of her operation when she was five months old on, on her behavior now and how to correct it i've invested time and money in this dog to make sure I am being a responsible owner and doing the right thing by her so that I have a healthy, thriving dog. We don't do that with our children, do we? We don't go on parenting courses. We don't understand child development in any sort of really detailed way. We, are just, we just have these children and then we work it out. Um, because you assume you know it because they're the same beast as you are <laughs> or you were there once and you, you, just assume, you assume you know it, don't you? Yeah. And there's different schools, you know, it's really interesting doing the dog training because there's different schools of thought about how you do it and the, the kind of the most popular and, I guess, well-supported um, parent training um, methods would say that authoritative parenting is good. And that is basically whereby you are a parent and they are a child and actually that you, you do need to have boundaries and rules and expectations, but also as particularly as children develop into adolescence, because they're like many trainee, trainee adults, that you're able to adapt that a little bit and negotiate and problem solve. And it's not just about ruptures in, in relationships with your teenager, it's about how you repair them. The ruptures are going to happen, expect them, that's normal. But it's how you do that, that rupture repair cycle is what, what, what helps really healthy relationships to develop. And you're training your teenager really to then be a healthy adult that can have healthy relationships. So understanding that is really helpful. So I, I'm, I'm a real fan of parenting programs actually, I think whatever area you live in, in Berkshire, we have um, parenting special children. They're fantastic. They support children, um, parents, and uh, you know, to understand their children with whatever needs they have and you know, apply the most appropriate and helpful parenting strategies. So authoritarian parenting is the kind of strict, harsh, punitive, doesn't work. You're going to have a very unruly young person on your hands and, and very um, generally quite poor outcomes. The same with very passive parenting you know, treating your child like they're your best friend when actually they need you to be a parent. And you know, at times it's lovely to be friendly and lovable. Well, obviously you're friendly with the children, but you know what I mean? They're not your best friend, they're your child. And as they get older, you get more towards a kind of a friendship type relationship, I would say. I have that with my older children now. Um, you know, shared interests and experiences and being able to kind of, um, you know, function and communicate in a more adult to adult level. Not so much with the younger one. I still need to be a parent. So it's, it's about understanding how to adapt and understand the behaviour that you're seeing and the concerns that you have from a developmental level and how your behaviour as a parent and your responses are absolutely key to changing that for the better. That is. Um, so I think parenting programmes are really important. The diagnosis side of things is just, just remembering it is only one part of it. What else do you know about this child? And how does that impact? You know, how does ADHD or autism or you know, mental health difficulty impact on that child in different settings. What, what situations do they thrive in? What situations make it worse? You know, really understanding 
um, that child's experience, understanding their story, um, what's what's happened to you, not what's wrong with you, type stuff. Um, and you know, therapy, formal therapy, isn't for everyone. That doesn't mean you can't be therapeutic. That doesn't mean a school can't be therapeutic. Which is why the trauma informed schools training that I recently did. I thought I knew everything about trauma. I was like, oh, trauma training, I've done loads of that, I deliver that. In a slightly arrogant way, I'm not going to lie. Um, although I'm not an arrogant person, but you know, you can sort of think, oh, I've, I've, I've done trauma training to death. It was a 10-day, 11-day diploma, <coughs> and it's one of the best things I've ever done in all of my years of um, working and training. And that's because it takes a relational approach and a systemic contextual approach. So basically understanding the context of that individual child at this time in their lives. In all of the areas of their lives, as I said, peer relationships, school, family, understanding the power of a relationship and what that can do. And I've seen that time and time again in schools that I've worked with um, young people where I sort of thought, felt a bit sad, like I'm not doing therapy anymore, really. I don't sit in rooms with kids anymore doing CBT. felt sad about that because it feels like I'm not doing therapy. Not sad because I don't think it's the most effective way. Um, but actually, during that training, realised... I'm drip-feeding therapy to these children because of how I relate to them and how I respond when they're distressed and how I apply the learning that I've had from that training to them. And I just really wish we could offer developmental and trauma-informed training to parents, that it was easily accessible um, to schools. I mean, that's that's an area of development. So we've got um, the Trauma-Informed Schools um, organisation is training lots of um, schools and school teachers and leaders um you know to change to change things because there is I'm, I'm a real i have a real bugbear about going on training and then nothing changes if practice doesn't change the training was you know pointless mm. one of the ways i think one of the, one of the biggest issues with uh, just chat i mean you're talking about issues in schools there is generally we have as, as a society we just have such a poor understanding of mental health and I, I think we should. I think that one of the ways to improve thing, improve things in general, is to uh, is to. I know you're hating. I know you hate. What's the matter? Nothing. What are you doing down there? Then? Getting away from the microphone for a minute. <laughs> uh, one of the ways to um, improve the situation in the long term is to Im increase people's knowledge and understanding of their own mental health. You should teach it in schools. Yeah, I absolutely think absolutely. so. Absolutely. We we teach physical education, right? Yeah. Why don't we teach uh, uh, mental health? Yep. Why, don't we why don't we teach mental education? Can you, um, like, I like to think I've got a better understanding of myself, a better understanding of mental health in general than the average person, yeah. only through conversation and learning. I'm just very fortunate. I feel very fortunate with it for my own, for my own fucking well-being as well. That's why I'm very fortunate. And what I think is, if everyone in the world, <coughs> not the world, let's say everyone in the UK, or all kids in school right now, their their level of understanding of mental health bumped, or just self awareness bumped up by a one percentage point or two percentage points. The fucking impact that would have, yeah. The impact that would have on everything, on everything from the gross domestic product <laughs> to yeah. the uh, uh, the uh, the pressure on the NHS, yeah. you know, to all everything. It would just be so much better. Just teach it. Just crime. teach it. Just crime. All of it. everything. <clears throat> Everything just teach it. We don't teach it in the same way. I mean, sort of revelation over the last sort of six, twelve months is again back to that physical health, mental health thing. The way we where we approach, we should approach mental health in the same way we approach physical health. We 
you monitor our bodies. We notice an injury. My knee's a bit sore today. What shall I do about that? Oh, I'll think I'll rest it for the next couple of days. Or I'll think I'll do put some ice on it. And then we do these things, reactive things that we know can help fix it, maybe. And if that doesn't work, then we go and get help. We should treat mental health the same fucking way. And teaching people to notice it in others, teaching children to notice it in others. So I would do that naturally with my kids just because that's, you know, it comes naturally to me to talk quite openly about stuff like that. Um, But the, the government is attempting this so there is a mental health um, lead for schools initiative so a bit like every school has a safeguarding lead and their job is to oversee the safeguarding practices and processes and make sure it's all watertight and so on the mental health lead is the same idea oh just be a tick box exercise the the problem is you know i'm i'm the strategic lead for this in in our school so so i'm the strategic lead and then we have one in each school site we've got four school sites um that person allocated to, to be the mental health leader. Now, of course, they need to be trained. They're given something like 45 minutes a week <coughs> and 30 quid a month extra to money what? to do this role. Some of these people are on full-time teaching schedules. It's just not enough. And it's, and it's, so it is a bit tokenistic. And I think it, you know, it falls into to schools like ours. Um, they've sent me on the trauma-informed schools training. They have, um, they're going to be sending the senior leaders on on that, the heads of the school, which is really important because change needs to happen from the top, otherwise it doesn't happen. Um, and that's all good, but that, that's the onus on the schools and spending their money doing that training. It's not automatically provided. And the mental health lead role, part of it is about putting mental health in the curriculum. But I think it's about more about well-being because it is about, you know, I think we assume that children don't want to know about this stuff or that we should... We shouldn't talk to them about it. But actually, the only time we talk to kids is when it goes wrong and then we give them a label and that makes them feel worse sometimes. Um, so I, I find when I talk to kids about trauma, for example, or about anxiety or about ADHD autism and I talk really transparently about it, they want, they want to lap it up and then they start to notice that their friends maybe have been struggling with something and self-harm, for example, is massively on the increase and I understand people being worried about that, but... Not everybody realises that self-harm in itself isn't always associated with suicidal risk. Quite often it's a way of coping with really difficult feelings and creating a bit of pain because it releases endorphins, which helps the regulatory system to sort of the central nervous system to calm down and it actually has a an experience of calming. Um, so it's not ideal. Um, so obviously we wouldn't want them to be doing that. But lots of children use self-harm as a coping mechanism. And, and really, if we were to teach them about the science behind why people self-harm, because it releases endorphins and because it regulates your system and blah, 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 um, they might find alternative ways. Elastic band pinging, for example. My daughter does, wouldn't mind me saying that she has a small elastic band and she just pings it against her um, her arm and it causes a little bit of discomfort, but she finds it really calming. She's also fiddly and fidgety, so that helps with that too. So there are things, you know, mindfulness is really good. I didn't used to want to know too much about it. And, you know, being aware of your senses, you know, noticing things, being less in here and more aware of your environment. There's loads of stuff we could be teaching kids. And when you do teach it to them, and I do, it's amazing. They just lap it up. They want to understand. And it's really validating and normalising, actually, that this isn't such a stigma that you've got a mental health disorder. Actually, you're just like the rest of us. Mm. Very good words. I agree. Anything to finish off on? No. Oh, no full stop. (laughs) No full stop. Turn it off. Turn it off. No, it's really interesting. Fascinating. Fascinating. uh, Well, you know, 
the what you do fascinates me. The children aspects fascinates me. We both we both uh, both parents, obviously, but also aside from being both parents, that's the next generation coming up. You know, yeah. the, the better they are, the better care for I'm going to be when I'm decrepit and old, yeah. and the better place society will be. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, that's what it's all about. Um, I mean, just I was just when you were talking there about schools uh, and. Uh, the mental health, uh, the mental health leads for schools. I mean, what if, uh, what if, yeah, what if schools approached, approached caring for their pupils in the way that companies approach caring for their employees now, with a, a very positive view on mental health, well-being, mindfulness, mm-hmm. because companies have realised that holy shit, if we focus this and, and, and put money towards this. And have an environment where people who are not great, we can Im- we can help them. And people who are at a standard level, we can improve their understanding of themselves. And they will work a bit harder, work a bit better, more productive. We, we actually we actually make money from that. We get better results because we're caring for our people more. Mm-hmm. If, I was thinking, well, what if you look at a pupil as the, the staff member, as the employee, and the product, mm-hmm. the product that you want is the grade yeah. in the last year. You treat that pupil when they come into year seven or the first year in secondary school, and you go, "They're with us now for five years. We need yeah. to make sure they get everything they need to have every chance we can get of them having yeah. the right grades at the end." Absolutely. Last five years, that was a bit out of the outside the box. No, so. no, no, it wasn't. It's, that's really important, and I'm really interested in that as well because we've got a sensory project in one of the sites that I'm in currently, which is um, giving the pupils the autonomy and the decision making around leaving the classroom when they feel dysregulated. Now, if that's a mainstream school and saying, actually, some kids, oh no, <laughs> yeah, some kids that are struggling in class um, will act out and will behave in certain ways that they end up getting excluded anyway. So isn't it better to give school pe- children a, a little bit more autonomy and a bit more of an ability to self-direct and problem-solve by saying, I need to leave the classroom? Well, what about this? Again, just this shock, is Guinness talking here. You know, what about this? Giving kids the option to either go to fucking school or do it from Zoom from the bedroom. You know, like you get the option to work from home or go in. That's what I have now. I can go mm-hmm. in the office if I want. I can work from home. Giving kids the option. Well, more and more people are self, um, not self-educating, what am I talking about? Home-educating for that very reason that the school isn't working for the child and that's and it's causing more distress. And, you know, the jury can be out with some people about home education. I, again, I think it depends on context. For some kids, it's amazing. And actually, if it's their parents that are primarily, <coughs> you know, involved in that education and they're going out and they're doing trips together as a family and they're learning about things in a very experiential way, that can be fantastic. For some, it's about, uh, you know, for some children who would opt to be home educated or... Um, do the Zoom stuff, it's about avoidance and that's not going to help because actually they might not engage with it so it's not addressing the pro- you know, the problems that they're having. So I think it really depends on context but I think having the ability to, to leave a classroom to go somewhere and see someone, not just go somewhere, not into a toilet, not into a cubicle and talk to someone or just get space and explain what we're struggling with will, will I think will serve them better in the long term because actually what that will also do is build an understanding of what they're struggling with and just forcing them to sit there and continue in, with their distress without any support is not, it, it just ma- makes no sense. Not going to change anything. And, and this is why kids end up getting excluded. Oh. Jenny, it's been an absolute pleasure. Honestly, I've learned a lot. I have learned a lot there. And it actually informed and changing the way I'm thinking about, again, 
parenting strategies for myself with certain things um, and uh, and uh, how do schools work how it all works been a pleasure work in progress you're a good person you're a good person I try to be thanks for the journey let's go and get some drinks and enjoy the uh, afternoon festivities brilliant thanks for you Thank you for listening. You can become a patron of H-Hour by going to patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. You can support the podcast in that way. You get access to a very niche core group of H-Hour podcast supporters. You get invite to a private Discord community or Discord server. You get access to all of the podcasts before anyone else. And you also get access to private interviews that are done with each guest that are never put out publicly. H-Hour patrons see them, the public do not. So for example, on this podcast, there was a pre-podcast interview done, which lasts in the vicinity of 10 to 20 minutes, where the guest was asked a specific set of questions, and all of the H-Hour patrons get to access that. And the H-Hour patrons chose the questions. Go to patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts and become a patron. Another shout to those who brought you the podcast today. Rugby the Heroes a not-for-profit organization raising money for military charities to support ex-military personnel and serving personnel on occasion in their hardest times, in their times of need. Rugby the Heroes were formed in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was sadly killed on operations serving in Afghanistan in 2008. And since they were formed in 2009, they've raised in excess of £120,000. Look on their website, rugbyforheroes.org, to find out about the next events. They've got many coming up this year, and I will see you at one of them. Also, bringing you this podcast today with the Aardvark Group. Aardvark have established themselves as a major player in its field, renowned for exceptional technology and innovative propositions that have supported countless defence ministries, the humanitarian and NGO sectors, and commercial operators and theatres of war and post-conflict environments around the world. They have got incredibly innovative technology that they deploy to help save lives. In essence, to reduce the risk of loss of life or severe injury through explosive threats. They also have an online shop where you can get kit on the man, on the woman kit. If you're an operator working in those kinds of environments, then head to aardvark.group. And when you're checking out, use the discount code HHOUR, aardvark.group. Also bringing you this podcast today with Combat Cigars. When you have a mess function, when you have a piss-up, when you have a get-together with your old crew, when you have a dining-in, a dining-out, a mess-do, whenever you think, man, we should get cigars in for this, think Combat Cigars. That's what you want to be getting. A veteran-owned, veteran-operated cigar company sourcing their cigars from the heart of Colombia and bringing them right here into the UK for you to enjoy particularly of popularity right now, is the Victory Cigar, which features on its band the medal ribbon with rosette of the South Atlantic Medal, issued for those who took part in the Falklands campaign, recapturing the Falkland Islands that the Argentines invaded. Combatcigars.co.uk Thank you. Until the next time, out.